0: Mark chapter 10. I'll ask you to turn in your Bibles, if you would, to Mark chapter 10. If you were not here this morning, uh, I would encourage you to get the tapes. Really, from the last three weeks, we've been talking about the marks of a faithful church. And as one of the marks of a faithful church, this morning we talked about an accountability plan in God's family. And we looked at Matthew 18. And so if that's new to you and you need to understand that whole thing, I encourage you to pick up the tape from that. There are probably some in the back. Uh, We'd love to give those to you so you can become familiar with that. Well, tonight we're in Mark chapter 10, but before we actually study Mark chapter 10 for the second week in a row, I would like to read for you a proverb. It's just to get our thinking going here. Proverbs 16.25. Proverbs 16.25 says this, There is a way which seems right to a man, but its end is the way of death. There is a way which seems right to a man, but its end is the way of death. And that is my entry, my personal entry, as the theme verse to the world and the culture and sadly, oftentimes even the church, when it comes to dealing with this issue of marriage and divorce and remarriage. There is a way that seems right to a man, but its end is the way of death. This topic of marriage, divorce, remarriage... Uh, brings with it uh, all kinds, a vast array uh, of different opinions. There are books, and there are seminars, and there are tapes, and there are articles, and it goes on and on and on and on. There's a virtual sea of information, and really the conclusions run the gamut. Uh, It's very confusing. I got on the internet last night just to see, just to go to a bookstore and just do a search on some of those words, and uh, there was no way I could even begin to to deal with all these books and they give you little snippets to tell you you know some of the angle, just to give you a little flavor of it. Basically you could believe whatever you wanted to believe and find a book to support what you were believing. Uh, Amazing to see all of the information. It pretty much comes down to, if I can borrow from Proverbs chapter sixteen, that people do what seems right to them. That's how we function. And there is a way that seems right to us, and that's going to ultimately end in death or destruction, as the proverb would say. So we don't want to do that. What we want to do is uh, take the Bible. It seems to be put off the shelf, and that's why we've come to all those different conclusions, our ways. We want to open the Bible and say, well, what does God's way say? What is God's way? And that's exactly what I hope we're going to do here tonight, to have the Bible at the forefront of our thinking. It's interesting what we do to the Bible, though, too, isn't it? I mean, many people would claim that very thing and I'm going to use an extreme example. I don't think this is normal, but let me just give you an extreme example of what people have done with the Bible historically to try to prove their point. Malachi 2.16, you don't need to go there, but Malachi 2.16 is probably the clearest statement regarding God's opinion on divorce in all the Bible. That's what we're talking about in Matthew 10, by the way. God says, I hate divorce. I mean, it's very clear. Regardless of your translation, that's what He says. Listen to this translation. This is a translation from a book that I do not own. This is a secondary source for me. The Aramaic translation of a book called Targum Jonathan. Here's how it reads. Here's how it translates Malachi 2.16. Quote, If you hate her, divorce her. Wow. How in the world did you get that out of Malachi 2.16? If you hate her, divorce her. I mean, we do so many things in the name of translation and in the way of nuance or whatever. I don't know what the excuse would be. But isn't it amazing that we will go to great lengths? We'll go to great lengths to be comfortable with our position and our practice. And I think we need to be very, very careful about that. The good news is, as believers, there should be no question what we're going to do with the Scripture. That we will want to allow it to speak for itself. I mean, it's even exciting in one sense for us to come here tonight so we're not in the dark, we're not fumbling around. What in the world should we do? What should we believe about marriage? What should we believe about divorce and remarriage? I don't know. Maybe I'll get on the internet, close my eyes and you know, click the mouse and hope for the best. At least we don't have to do that. I mean, we can have a real, real enthusiasm and excitement and say, I can know the mind of God. I can know what it says. Freedom! Freedom! Because we can know what his truth would have us say. And the great part is, too, we can not only know truth, we can know what's best for us, because God is always going to have what's best for us in mind. It's wonderful. Well, tonight we're in Mark 10, and in Mark 10, as we discussed last week, Jesus is answering the divorce question, as we called it. The divorce question. In one sense, we'd want to call it the marriage question, because that's what he's emphasizing. What's all of this about Well, I would like to review Jesus answering the divorce question because we're going to see He answers the divorce question in three ways. And last time we saw the first way and the second way, and tonight we'll look at the third way. But before we get to the third, I would like to review. And then what we're going to do is we're going to broaden our scope. We're not only going to look at Mark 10, we're going to look at Matthew 19. Uh, we'll reference Matthew 5. We'll go to First Corinthians chapter 7 because we're not only going to look at this passage. God has said more. As a matter of fact, Jesus Christ has said more himself. He said more than is just recorded in Mark chapter 10. But by way of review, let's bring ourselves up to speed. Look at these first two ways that Jesus answers the divorce question. We do this in verse 2 if we pick up there. In verse 2 it says, Some Pharisees came up to Jesus, testing him and began to question him whether it was lawful for a man to divorce his wife. Now, are these Pharisees, especially, I'm putting you on the spot if you were here last week, these Pharisees, they're, they're looking for truth? Are they truth searchers? They're not truth searchers. They're trying to catch Jesus. They're, try, they're trying to put him in a corner and getting him, to, getting him to say something wrong. Remember, he's in the same area where John the Baptist was put in a corner and he made a statement about morality. John the Baptist lost his head. Literally. And so they're probably just trying to trap him. As a matter of fact, Jesus already talked about divorce to the Pharisees back in Matthew 5, chronologically. So he's already brought it up. They're trying to trap him, indict him. But now we come to that first, the first way Jesus answers the divorce question. We see it in verses 3 through 5. And here's how he does that. He answers the divorce question by exposing illegitimate Bible interpretation. This is review. Exposing, turning the lights on illegitimate Bible interpretation. Because here's what's going to happen. What we see in these verses is that the Pharisees, they cite the Old Testament. They have an answer. Here's our authority. Our authority is Deuteronomy. Our authority is Deuteronomy 24. And that's why we can get a divorce and basically have a license to divorce whenever we want to. But what Jesus does is he calls them on the carpet. And again, I'm not reading every verse. He's going to challenge them. Because Deuteronomy 24 interpreted in its context doesn't give you license to get a divorce whenever you want to get a divorce. And that was basically their approach. Notice what Jesus says in Mark ten five. But Jesus said to them, because of your hardness of heart, he wrote you this commandment. They, they were busy proof texting. Oh, here's a verse we can use. And we looked at it last time. If you read, read that passage, it's not giving you just a, a, a flippant permission slip, get out of marriage free slip kind of thing to get a divorce. Jesus is basically telling them that that was was not a sanction. It was a regulation. Because you were practicing sinful things, God gave you a regulation. But it wasn't a sanction. We move on. Another way he's going to deal with the divorce question, and that is by expressing God's plan for marriage. I love this part. In verses 6 through 9, we emphasized this last time. They're wanting to figure out how to get out of marriage. You know, and how is it legitimate, and how can you do it? How can you get a divorce? What's the rule of thumb for divorce? And Jesus comes at it from a totally different angle. Basically, guys, you're asking the wrong question. You're trying to accomplish the wrong thing. Remember Genesis 1 and 2. God's plan is marriage. God's plan is marriage, one man, one woman for life. Quit trying to figure out how you can get a divorce. And remember what God intended from the very beginning. Let's go ahead and see this. And and before we look at verse 6, I'm going to borrow from Matthew 19, which is the parallel account. It's not recorded by Mark. And going right in, this is Matthew 19, 4. Jesus says to the Pharisees, Have you not read? they are these experts in the Bible, supposedly. And Jesus is letting them have it. Have you not read? In the Scriptures, Genesis 1 and 2, then verse 6, if you look with me. But from the beginning of creation, God made them male and female. For this reason, a man shall leave his father and mother, and the two shall become one flesh, so that they are no longer two but one flesh. And we talked about the inseparability of marriage in God's plan, and God's uh, created order, one flesh, inseparable. can't separate them. <coughs> then he gives his divine commentary in verse nine, "What therefore, God has joined together, literally yoked together? Let no man separate. Again, the point of it all, don't get all concerned and trying to figure out how to get a divorce. See it for what it is. God says, marriage for life. One man, one woman. I like what one person said in the Bible knowledge commentary. Listen to this. Marriage is to be a monogamous, heterosexual, permanent, one flesh relationship. End of quote. Good way to summarize God's plan for marriage. It's monogamous, it's heterosexual, it's permanent, and it's one flesh relationship. And that's where I left you hanging last time. That's where we were, and and we were strong on that. This is God's plan, and as I said last time, I didn't want to take the teeth out of it. We're going to talk about more revelation, but we need to uh, make sure we leave it to say what it says and allow it to carry its power, and I don't think we're ready to take the teeth out yet. He's going to continue to sink the teeth in. That's God's plan, marriage. Let's emphasize that, and now he's going to move on to this third way he answers the divorce question, and that is by emphasizing the seriousness of divorce the teeth are coming folks okay the teeth are still coming it's still strong now i did say that we're going to look at other passages and we're going to broaden this but let's not get ahead of ourselves notice what he says in verse 10 it says in the house the disciples began questioning him about this again now i know we're not to the meat of it yet now, some people try to say that they're questioning his authority kind of thing i don't think so i mean here they they're talking to truth personified Jesus, He is the truth. And they know He's the truth to one degree or another. I think they're just excited. I mean, here they've been taught by these religious teachers and at least they've known what these religious teachers have been teaching all along. They've had a wrong view. And here truth is talking to them, looking them in the eye. I would be questioning Him too. I mean, help me understand. I'm coming to these new conclusions I've I've never understood. They've always been in the Bible, but they've been kept from us. I don't think they're questioning him in a a, a bad kind of way. They just need more information. Then, Then verse 11, and here's where the gloves really do come off. And he said to them, Whoever divorces his wife and marries another woman commits adultery against her. Okay, he deals with the man first. Verse 12, now time for the woman. And if she herself divorces her husband and marries another man, she is committing adultery. Pretty strong. Pretty straightforward. And he's basically saying the same thing, isn't he? First he deals with the man, then he deals with the woman. Now before we talk a little bit more about that, a couple of interesting observations regarding those two verses that may prove interesting to you. First of all, regarding verse 11, again by way of observation... What Jesus just said there in verse 11 was something the rabbis never, ever said, taught, or believed. So say, what are you talking about? Jesus recognized right there that a man could commit adultery against his wife. That was not what the Jews were teaching in those days. Women were second-class citizens. A man couldn't commit adultery against a woman. She could commit adultery against him, and he could commit adultery against another man if he went to another man's wife. But they didn't go for this committing adultery against a woman, because, again, second-class kind of thing. This is, this is revolutionary. And again, this is throughout Scripture. Men and women are equal. We have unique roles. But this would have been plowing new ground for them, at least, not for God. Another observation regarding verse 12. It's interesting in verse 12 it says, She herself divorces her husband and marries another man. She's committing adultery. You can tell Mark is addressing a Gentile audience. Because if he were only addressing a Jewish audience, that wasn't allowable. A woman couldn't do that. But in the Gentile world, they could. Now that doesn't mean that it never happened, because sometimes it did happen in Palestine. But that is interesting to see regarding those. Well, those were just ways to soften the blow. Back to verses 11 and 12. Basically, what is it teaching? In summary form, it's teaching that divorce and remarriage equals what? Adultery. That is what he's saying. Divorce and remarriage equals adultery. Now again, we're going to see that there are some reasons in the Scriptures that God would allow for a divorce and allow for a remarriage. But let's, again, not get ahead of ourselves. Those are going to be very limited reasons. The general teaching we're seeing here is divorce and remarriage equals adultery. What's adultery? It's having sex with someone who's not your wife. And how does God feel about that? Or your husband? That's a sin. That offends God. Now why? Let's ask the question why. Why is divorce and remarriage considered by God adultery? It's because he doesn't recognize the divorce. They're still married. Because it's an illegitimate divorce. God never told them they could get a divorce just for no reason. And so they get a divorce and they go and they have a relationship with someone else and get married to them. Well, the first marriage never ended. And that's why he can say that it's adultery. And if this is true, and it is, right, how would, have these, how would these folks have felt about this? How would we feel about it in our culture? That's offensive. I mean, that goes against the grain of almost absolutely everything we would hear about. And it would have been true then also. Sometimes we think our culture is so bad, don't we? Their culture was just as bad as our culture is. It seems to go in cycles. It may have been worse and more decadent than our culture. They would have been angry about this. Very severe. Strong words for them, I would say, and strong words for us. It's one of those, thus saith the Lord, end of story kind of things. Interesting. Divorce, yes, it hurts couples. Yes, it hurts children. Yes, it hurts families. And all that would be true. But notice that isn't even the angle that Jesus takes here. Jesus is emphasizing the fact that it's adultery and that offends God. That's the main issue, I think, here. Not saying that those other things aren't true. Sober perspective, sober perspective on marriage, sober perspective on divorce, and what this whole thing is all about. We've had a sober day, haven't we? I talked to my mom this afternoon, we had lunch together, and she said, well, after this morning, I'll I'll, I'll, I'll bet no one comes back. (laughs) Proved her wrong. (laughs) Well, now what I want to do is broaden our scope, Okay. Let's let that be alone and let's allow it to be forceful. But what we don't want to be is like the Samaritans. In John chapter 4, the Samaritans only believe part of God's Word. And Jesus rebukes the Samaritan woman because she held to part of God's Word the first five books of the Old Testament. And He confronts her and basically in a nutshell says, you don't worship God. The Jews, the non-Samaritan Jews, they worship God. Why? Because they accept the whole Old Testament and you are limiting yourself to the first five books, you don't understand God, you don't worship God. That's pretty strong. And that's something I always want to take into consideration. I don't want to say, well, based upon this amount of revelation, I'm going to build my doctrinal house. No, I want to make sure that it's this amount of revelation interpreted, and I want to see what God's Word says as a whole. I want to be careful about that. It's easier to go the other way. So let's broaden our perspective and let's do it in this way. Let's pose and answer this question. Here's the question. Does the Bible teach that anyone who marries a second time is committing adultery? That's how we're going to spend the rest of our time. Answering that question. Does the Bible teach that anyone who marries a second time is committing adultery? And I think that will be the best way for us to do this and broaden our scope. What does it teach regarding that question? And by the way, the answer is no. And we're going to answer it in several different steps. There are a few things that can break the marital bond in God's eyes and therefore give the option for remarriage. Number one, death. If your spouse dies, you can be remarried. Unless you're like our family. When my father died, my brother and I informed my mom that she would not be getting married again. (laughs) Unless he's a pastor or something. We just couldn't live with it. (laughs) Sorry, Mom, I didn't tell you I was going to say that, but uh, it still stands. (laughs) So if any of you older men are feeling godly, you better talk to me. (laughs) We can edit all that from the tape, but... uh... (laughs) I think the answer is yes. And death is one of those things that would break the marital bond and therefore free up a man or a woman to be remarried. And so there is that exception and I think we will see more. If you would turn with me, if you would, in your Bibles to Romans chapter 7. Romans chapter 7 would be one of a passage on this. Romans 7 is interesting because as you're going to Romans 7, it's not really talking about marriage primarily. What it's dealing with is the law and how we're not under the law. But then he uses the illustration of marriage. And so, and how that's been broken because of death when there's freedom there. Notice what it says in Romans chapter 7, verse 3. It says, So then, if while her husband is living, she is joined to another man, she has been called an adulteress. But, here's what I want you to see if her husband dies, she is free from the law, so that she is not an adulteress, though she is joined to another man. And again, totally different context. But yet the point is made: death dissolves, and therefore there's freedom to remarry. Does that make sense? So there is one reason why someone who's once been married can be married again and not be committing adultery. Now I know that shatters some of our uh, stories that we tell about, you know, one day going to heaven and you know chasing our wife around heaven for eternity. And I'll, I hope I hope somehow that all works out, and and God blesses us. But. That would be a problem, wouldn't it? (laughs) There won't be marrying and there won't be giving of marriage as the scriptures tell us in heaven. But I take it that God will give us uh, all the joy in the world so I'm not taking that as something uh, bad. I've got myself in trouble by now. So we're going on to the second issue here. Sexual sin, I believe, brings allowance, and I stress allowance, for divorce and remarriage. I believe that sexual sin gives allowance... I'm not saying it has to happen, that's why I'm emphasizing that, for divorce and for remarriage. And this is based upon Matthew nineteen, nineteen. And I want you to turn there if you would, Matthew nineteen, nineteen. Reason Matthew nineteen, we could go to Matthew five, but we're going to go to Matthew nineteen, and Matthew nineteen is the parallel passage. Okay? It's the, if you have a parallel New Testament, you're going to look at Matthew 19, and you're also going to look at Mark chapter 10. And more revelation is given in Matthew 19. And so, therefore, I want to make sure that we consult that. Why is more revelation given? I don't know. It would have been easier for me if he would have put it in Mark also. But he doesn't do that. And so I want to make sure that we use it, though, to instruct our theology. Matthew 19, 19:9. 19, 9, Jesus said, And I say to you, Whoever divorces his wife... Now we've got something additional here from Mark. Except for immorality. And marries another woman, commits adultery. Oh, there's something that we need to pay attention to there. Except for immorality. The word immorality there is the word porneia, where we get our English word pornography, and it's a broad word. It can include heterosexual sin. It can can include homosexual sin. It's a generic word for sin. Sexual sin pornea. and so that's what he's talking about. I would take it. So therefore, my conclusion would be that sexual immorality can bring allowance for remarriage, or excuse me for divorce and for remarriage. but again, it's not mandatory. It doesn't have to happen. we'll talk more about that at the very end. Now some, even I was reading this afternoon, some, uh, Matthew 5 basically teaches the same thing. Some would object to this and say, well, no, it doesn't teach that because this is not talking about a married couple. It's talking about the betrothal period. Um, and, and I don't believe that because he says marriage here. Uh, I was reading even today, Carl Laney, Carl Laney, by the way, believes in, in no remarriage, no divorce, no remarriage. And he himself would even say, no, it's not talking about betrothal here because it's talking about marriage. Now, he ends up in a different conclusion that we would, but he's saying you can't use the betrothal argument here. Interesting. Now, here's an objection. Again, some believers, like Carl Laney, good, godly individuals, refuse to accept Matthew 5. They refuse to accept Matthew 19 because, again, some say it's betrothal. This is not true marriage. Therefore, once someone is married, they can never get a divorce. They can never be remarried. Some say you can be divorced, but you can never be remarried. It depends on, on your position. But I personally don't accept that. I think he's talking about married people, and I think he's saying immorality, which is sexual sin, and therefore you can divorce. And you, therefore, if the divorce happens, it's a true divorce in God's eyes, then you can be remarried. And I say that because I think that's based upon the simplest reading of the text. It's just the, 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 When you read it and you say, what does this mean? What does it say in its context? Well, that's what it says. There is allowance. Although it doesn't have to happen. And I don't want to question motives. Sometimes, though, I wonder if we, want to have, if we want to be more conservative. I'm very conservative in my theology. And again, I'm not throwing rocks. Um, but Why would we want to say it doesn't teach that? Um, and different people have different positions for different reasons. This is just one example. I'm not trying to stereotype here. But uh, one of my former pastors tells an interesting story. Um, He was visiting with a well-known Christian leader. By the way, this particular Christian leader that he was visiting with uh, tends to create a lot of rules and regulations. He does a lot of family kinds of seminars and has all these little technical rules. And The two of them were standing there, and I don't know if they were outside or looking outside. And my former pastor said to this man, he said, Bill, He said, uh, they just happened to be hanging out. He said, Bill, uh, what do you do with the exception clauses in Matthew 5 and Matthew 19? Because he knew that he held to a no remarriage position, no divorce. And this man said, he said, well, John, I want you to look out there and look at those ducks. I don't know if these are ducks or geese. Okay, I don't remember. This is as I remember it. Look at those ducks out there. And these ducks were in a cage. They were in a pen. There was a fence covering it, so they couldn't get out. He said, what would happen to those ducks, John, if we were to let them out? The implication was, and he went on to explain his own question, they would hurt themselves. They would fly away and something bad might happen to them. You see where he's going. I I can't come to, to allow for that because of what may happen. That's what the Pharisees did, by the way. They would create fences around God's laws and add to their own laws so that no one would ever even break God's law. Interesting thing my former pastor said, Bill, what if there were no ducks? You see what the point he's making? Don't build your theology around whether or not there are ducks in cages or anything else around an animal illustration. Don't build your theology around that because it has really, it's, it's irrelevant. What does the Bible say? I mean, don't build it around if there are ducks or not. That's why he said. What if there were no ducks? I mean, Let's just talk about what the verses mean. And that has stuck with me. It's rather interesting. I think we have to be careful to say, not what if there were no ducks, (laughs) but just deal with the passage and say, well, what is this about? And go before the Lord and say, what are my motives here? Uh, And for me, I have very, very conservative theology. Um, But I do want to be careful, and I'm glad I have people around me who try to challenge me to make sure my theology isn't more conservative than God's is. And if there's an exception, and you base it upon the text, I take it there is. And that would be my understanding of Scripture. If there's sexual sin, there's allowance for divorce. Therefore, there's allowance for remarriage. Number three on our list. Abandonment by an unbelieving spouse brings the option, again, I emphasize option, of divorce and remarriage. Abandonment by an unbelieving spouse. I'm that particular because that's how particular the text is. An unbelieving spouse abandons a believing spouse. You do have the option for divorce and then remarriage. The passage is 1 Corinthians chapter 7. If you would go ahead and turn there with me. 1 Corinthians chapter 7. At the end tonight, I'll recommend, what we'll basically do is pose some practical questions. Um, I'll attempt to answer some practical questions and then I'll even recommend some further reading, uh, really on both sides of this whole debate. Okay, going to this issue in First Corinthians chapter 7, abandonment. And let me just say that I think it's going to be best for us just to walk through the passage. We're going to look at several verses and I'll basically, we'll go through and I'll make some comments as we go. Notice verse 10 here. It says, But to the married, Paul says, I give instructions, not I, but the Lord, that the wife should not leave her husband. But if she does leave, she must remain unmarried or else be reconciled to her husband and that the husband should not divorce his wife. What's he saying there? First of all, he's saying that unbiblically divorced, if I can say it that way, people need to remain unmarried or be reconciled. If there's no grounds for a biblical divorce, no true grounds, scriptural grounds, and you get a divorce, then you need to stay unmarried or be reconciled. He's saying that Absolutely. If she does leave, again in verse 11, she must remain unmarried or else be reconciled. She doesn't have the option to be remarried because the marriage was never truly broken because there was no sexual immorality there. Make sense? Let's keep going then. Verse 11. Uh, I want you to notice something else about verse 11, I should say. Verse 11 is not giving some kind of uh, option to leave as long as you stay single. Okay. Make sure you see that because someone could read verse 11 and say well she can leave but as long as she stays unmarried then she can do it it's not teaching that I don't believe it's teaching that at all if you look at that as it talks about uh, the tense there but if she does leave it's called an aorist passive it's something that's happened in the past you can't be thinking right now as you sit here tonight and say hmm as long as I stay unmarried I can leave (laughs) no as we'll see he's dealing with people who have gotten saved Okay, and if this has happened in the past, well, then you stay single if there was no biblical grounds for this. Does that make sense? You, this is not something you look toward the future to do as if something has happened. All right, well, let's continue. I say that because otherwise it would violate Matthew five thirty two. Let's move on to verse twelve. But to the rest I say, not the Lord. I can't help but at least explain that people use this to abuse all kinds of things. See, this is Paul's opinion. This isn't the Lord. None of you folks would do that, but people do that. Well, remember, Paul speaks inspired scripture, right? He writes it. 2 Timothy three sixteen, Second 2 Peter 1, 2 Peter 3. I think the point is, if you take it simply, he's saying, Jesus didn't cover this. This isn't what Jesus talked about. Jesus talked about the other things. And I reviewed, and now I'm going to tell you some new revelation that Jesus didn't come. I think he's saying, well, I'm speaking humanly now not inspired because that would contradict other scripture. He's giving them new information. Then verse 12 goes on to say, that if any brother has a wife who is an unbeliever, track with this, any brother, saved person, has a wife who is an unbeliever, and she consents to live with him, She must not. he must not divorce her. We understand that, right? You get saved and you and your wife both, both used to be total reprobates, let's say. I mean, you used to be a sinner, and you lived like a sinner. You're living the pagan lifestyle, and all of a sudden you get saved. What you don't do is say, I can't live with that person anymore because I'm saved now. The basic gist of First uh, Corinthians 7 is stay where you are, because God might use you. Stay where you are, because you can see how they may have thought that. I'm a new creation in Christ. I can't stay with that guy or that lady. Stay where you are. Don't divorce her as long as the other one consents to live with you. Then verse 13, And a woman who has an unbelieving husband, and he consents to live with her, she must not send her husband away. So if you get married, if you are married and you get saved, but the other one doesn't, stay married. Don't get a divorce. Stay married with that person. Verse 14, For the unbelieving husband is sanctified through his wife, and the unbelieving wife is sanctified through her believing husband. For otherwise your children are unclean, but now they are holy. Well, what's all that mean? There's that sanctifying influence. Humanly speaking, that unbeliever is more apt to get saved. We don't know who the elect are and who they're not. I'm not trying to deal with that. But humanly speaking, why? Because you're living this godly life in front of this person and you're sharing the gospel with them and they're seeing how your life is changing... There's that sanctifying influence. Same way with children. I mean, you don't want to say, well, my husband is not saved. I'm going to leave and leave the children with him or vice versa. If you're a husband, you're not going to leave and say, I'll leave her with those children. You're saved. You're going to have a sanctifying influence. You want to be there to live a godly life in front of those kids and share with them and read the Bible to them and live a godly life. There's a sanctifying influence. Divorce is not allowable. Don't do that. Then in verse 15, we'll move things along here. Yet if the unbelieving one leaves, let him leave. The brother or the sister is not under bondage in such cases, but God has called us to peace. And that's where I would. That's why I believe that abandonment does give option. There could be remarriage. They're so angry with you, and you're a wife, and, and this husband says, you know, you're such a religious freak, I can't live with it anymore, I'm leaving you. That happens. You don't want to have that happen as a wife, but it happens, and what are you going to do? You're going to need to let them go, and you're not under bondage anymore. You do have the freedom because you have been abandoned there by an unbelieving spouse. And I take it that they're free to marry if they are not under bondage anymore. Well, finally, are we okay with that so far? At least understanding that? giving you some things to work through. Finally, I also think it's biblically consistent to say that people who are divorced before they are saved could be remarried. I don't have the biblical grounds as strong as blatant text talking about it, but I think there's freedom to do that. You say, how can you say that? Well, the Bible basically deals with people once they're saved. Okay? Okay? We do a lot of horrible things in our past before we're saved. But I'm a new creation in Christ. I take it that there's freedom there. If I go to Second Corinthians 5.17, I think there is going to be freedom. I've had my sins forgiven. I'm a new creation. I have a new start and I can do that. And so I'm comfortable before God saying that I believe that if you do something horrible in your past, you've been forgiven, you have freedom, and you have a clean slate. Again, I think we need to draw the line where God draws the line. Divorce somehow in the evangelical world and I think, I hope, in the last week and a half you've heard me say clearly, you've heard me emphasize it's horrible nature and it's wrong and it's offense against God and an unbeliever who commits it is offending God. But what I don't want to do is make it the unpardonable sin of the evangelical world. I think we've done that. We're bordering on that at least. And I don't want to do that. I know a man who has been divorced. His wife is saved. He's unsaved. He leaves her. He gets saved. He comes back to her and says, I would like to marry you. I think that would be the best thing. I want to marry you. I want to raise these children. I left you. I'm sorry. I repent. I'm a new creation. I want to come back. It's pretty exciting. Very exciting. Now he's studying to be a pastor. And here's where it gets interesting. Some of you might say, that's that's really exciting. You know the problem? In my opinion, the seminary didn't know whether or not to accept him. Not because they were against it. I think they understood the biblical issues and said, he's a new creation, he's done this. But he, he he could be qualified for ministry. But they didn't know whether to accept him because they realized and they knew that the chances would be slim to none that a church would ever take him. Because it has this unpardonable kind of sin label on it. I think it's pretty ironic that hypothetically a man could fornicate for 20 years of his life and be a pastor. But if he was divorced and got remarried to his wife, he could never be a pastor. It seems we've done something strange with this whole, with this whole thing of divorce. It doesn't settle well with me, I guess, is what I'm saying, in light of the Scriptures, and see what God does to a person's life. And I always remind people, what did the Apostle Paul do before he was saved? Well, he didn't get a divorce, that's for sure. No, he just killed Christians. Hmm. It seems like something's pretty inconsistent here. And again, I tell you, I I have... <laughs> Pretty conservative theology, I would have to say, and not in a bragging kind of way, but I, I'm challenged about this whole being narrower than God is on things. I'm challenged by that, and I just share that with you. Divorce is a sin, is what we're seeing. Marriage is God's plan, and it's supposed to last a lifetime. But there is forgiveness, and there are what some would call exceptions. There are allowances, maybe, would be a better way to say it. And I want to make sure that we know that. They're very limited, but they are there. Now, by way of conclusion, and then let's wrap up a very sober day altogether. together. Let's just ask a few practical questions. Some questions I had rolling around in my mind. I don't even know if I have the right answers. But let me give you some of these questions and help you think through these as I have. Question number one I asked was, would you ever recommend divorce? Pat Abendroth, you, you're a pastor, would you ever recommend divorce? And I guess my answer to that would be, I don't think I would. I wouldn't recommend it. I know there's an allowance there. I would recommend forgiveness. That would be the best, to show the forgiveness that God would show us, even for doing horrible things against Him. That would be the best case scenario. But what I wouldn't want to do is not be truthful with people. I'd want to tell them, well, this is what God says and this is what you could do, given your circumstances. Second question, and maybe these are just all pastoral, I don't know. Next question, what about special ministry to divorced men and women? I've had that asked me before. Would we ever start a special ministry for those folks? I think there's a great need, right? I hope God uses us because we should be used by God to help people with any kind of struggle that they've had in life. Maybe my answer is just greedy. I don't know. I don't think so. You know what? Some of my sincere brothers and sisters in the Lord have had divorces in their past and they minister to me. I don't want to put them by themselves. I think we're too into specialized ministry sometimes in the evangelical world. Well, here's a certain kind of people group. Let's stick them over there. No, let's not. Uh, let's minister to them and let them minister to us. And They're some of my best friends and I wouldn't have those relationships otherwise. Uh, the body is so different and unique. Let's function together. It doesn't mean people don't have special needs, but I thought I'd share that with you. Next question I had on my list. I have five here. Uh, does Omaha Bible Church marry people who have been divorced? I can say that more than opinion on practice. Do we marry people who've been divorced? Yes, if it's a divorce that's been recognized by God. If it meets one of those qualifications, yes, we would do that. And based upon my understanding of Scripture, it would be unbiblical for us not to. We would need to. If God has allowed that to happen, then we would want to divorce Him. It doesn't mean there's not counsel. It doesn't mean we don't help people. But we would do that. How could we not do that? Number four, is divorce allowable in physically abusive situations? That's an important question, a big question. What about in physically abusive situations? The interesting thing is the Bible doesn't deal with that. It doesn't give that as one of the allowances. But you know how I deal with that issue and my counsel to people has been? It's against the law. It's against the law to hurt someone and deal with it that way. And frankly, that may lead to abandonment but I'm going to take the high road and try to handle it God's way, and he didn't give that as an option, so I'm going to say, you know what, handle it, handle it legally. Handle it according to what the government would say. There's probably more to be said about that. Number five, finally, tonight, and then we'll pray. What are some good resources for more study? Now, this is a big issue. There's debate in, in our camp on this. Well, What's a good resource? I think the best book that I've found so far, just has a couple chapters in it, it has two chapters, and the name of the book is Ethics, for a Brave New World. Is that the title? Anybody else? I think that's the title. Eric Ball has my copies. <laughs> Ethics for a Brave New World by John and Paul Feinberg. Now you're going to write it down, then I'm going to tell you why not to buy the book. But no, do write it down. Ethics for a Brave New World, John and Paul Feinberg. F E I N B E R G. And if Eric Ball would ever return mine, I would lend mine to you. <laughs> just kidding. He just got it. <laughs> It's a great book, but here's why you may not want it. It's very technical. It's very philosophical. I think he comes to... What he does is it's not just to give you the the cold, hard, fast answers. It's more research-oriented. He deals with both angles and both sides and dealing with other positions and interacts with all of them, these two brothers do, and then comes to an ultimate conclusion. Um, So it's tough going is what I'm saying, but it's a great book. It's one of the most exhaustive things I've seen. It's really tried to be fair and not paint straw men. So I, I would recommend it to you. It deals with other issues. It deals with uh, capital punishment. It deals with um, genetic engineering. All kinds of different issues to work through. Um, it wor- deals with birth control. It's a helpful book to have. Just tough going. Another book I could recommend. It's more outdated, and Feinberg has replaced it. Uh, Principles of Conduct. Principles of Conduct by John Murray. John Murray. I think he was a, He's no longer alive at Westminster. Uh, very very good. But the thing is, Feinberg interacts with him, um, and so that might be a better option. Another good book is called The Family by John MacArthur. It's out of print, unfortunately. The Family, I think it's the last chapter in that book, is helpful uh, in sorting through these different things. Maybe his study Bible might help also. If you want to look at the other side, and there are other books other than this one. I mentioned Carl Laney a minute ago. But another book would be by Charles Ryrie. I don't know if it's in print either. It's called You Mean, you mean the Bible Teaches That? You Mean the Bible Teaches That? And uh, that's the other side. I would disagree with him that there's no reason for remarriage. Um, but I want to give you a little breath there. Well, I hope this is helpful. Hard issue to work through. But I don't think God has left us in the dark and I don't think it's impossible. My theory is if the plain sense makes the most sense, seek no other sense. And I'm plagiarizing that from someone. That's my hermeneutic. That's my approach to Scripture. If the plain sense makes the most sense, seek no other sense. And that's really the approach I'm trying to take. And I hope that's the approach that you're trying to take. Well, quite a day. Let's pray, let's sing a song to praise God for His goodness and have some fellowship. Heavenly Father, we bow before you this morning, or excuse me this evening, Lord, and uh, we're so thankful that you give us the grace to empower us and to give us strength that we can uh, really do anything that you would want us to do. Lord, sin grieves us and we're certainly saddened by sin. Pray that tonight might be a good wake-up call for all of us to be challenged about our own living and our own relationships. It would make a difference. There would be purity in this body. Lord, I also pray in our, for those of us who are married that you might truly uh, encourage us in our marriages and to know and remind us that you are one who hates divorce and wants nothing to do with it. pray that that would be a tremendously motivating factor for us. Lord, I also pray for those who have had that in their past. Lord, I pray that you might minister to them, especially through the power of your Spirit to know that there is forgiveness that you separate our sin from us totally and completely it will not be held against us it's so good to know that your son Jesus Christ came here to this earth to pay for our sins and all of them including this one we've been talking about it's all because of him that we can have hope and we can work through these things thank you so much Lord for your goodness and your grace may we love you this week with our entire being in Jesus name, Amen